Chapter thirty one of the Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My brother, Henry Livingston, was not a strong man, David dictated. He had the same heart condition I have, but it developed earlier. After he left college, he went to Arizona and bought a ranch, and there he met and chummed with Elihu Clark, who had bought an old mine and was reworking it. Henry loaned him a small amount of money at that time, and a number of years later, in return for that, when Henry's health failed, Clark, who had grown wealthy, bought him a ranch in Wyoming at Dry River, not far from Clark's own property. Henry had been teaching at an eastern university, and then taken up tutoring. We saw little of him. He was a student, and he became almost a recluse. I saw less of him than ever after Clark gave him the ranch. In the spring of 1910, Henry wrote me that he was not well, and I went out to see him. He seemed worried, and was in bad shape physically. Elihu Clark had died five years before, and left him a fair sum of money, fifty thousand dollars, but he was living in a way which made me think he was not using it. The ranch buildings were dilapidated, and there was nothing but the barest necessities in the house. I taxed Henry with miserliness and he then told me that the money was not his, but left to him to be used for an illegitimate son of Clark's, born before his marriage, the child of a small rancher's daughter named Hattie Burgess. The Burgess girl had gone to Omaha for its birth, and the story was not known. In early years Clark had paid the child's board through his lawyer to an Omaha woman named Hines, and had later sent him to college. The Burgess girl married a Swede named Thorwald. The boy was eight years older than Judson, Clark's legitimate son. After the death of his wife, Elihu Clark began to think about the child, especially after Judson became a fair-sized boy. He had the older boy, who went by the name of Hines, sent to college, and in summer he stayed at Henry's tutoring school. Henry said the boy was like the Burgess family, blonde and excitable and rather commonplace. He did not get on well at college, and did not graduate. So far as he knew, Clark never saw him. The boy himself believed that he was an orphan, and that the Hines woman had adopted him as a foundling. But on the death of the woman he found that she had no estate, and that a firm of New York attorneys had been paying his college bills. He had spent a considerable time with Henry one way and another and he began to think that Henry knew who he was. He thought at first that Henry was his father, and there was some trouble. In order to end it, Henry finally acknowledged that he knew who the father was, and after that he had no peace. Clifton, his name was Clifton Hines, attacked Henry once, and if it had not been for the two men on the place, he would have hurt him. Henry began to give him money. Clark had left the fifty thousand for the boy, with the idea that Henry should start him in business with it. But he only turned up wildcat schemes that Henry would not listen to. He did not know how Henry got the money or from where. He thought for a long time that Henry had saved it. I'd better say here that Henry was fond of Clifton, although he didn't approve of him. He'd never married, and the boy was like a son to him for a good many years. He didn't have him at the ranch much, however, for he was a Burgess through and through, and looked like them. And he was always afraid that somehow the story would get out. Then Clifton learned, somehow or other, of Clark's legacy to Henry, 
and he put two and two together. There was a bad time, but Henry denied it, and they went upstairs to bed. That night Clifton broke into Henry's desk and found some letters from Elihu Clark that told the story. He almost went crazy. He took the papers up to Henry's and wakened him, standing over Henry with them in hand and shaking all over. I think they had a struggle, too. All Henry told me was that he took them from him and threw them in the fire. That was a year before Henry died, and at the time young Judd Clark's name was in all the newspapers. He had left college after a wild career there, and although Elihu had tied up the property until Judd was twenty-one, Judd had his mother's estate and a big allowance. Then, too, he borrowed on his prospects, and he lost a hundred thousand dollars at Monte Carlo within six weeks after he graduated. One way and another he was always in the newspapers, and when he saw how Judd was throwing money away, Clifton went wild. As Henry had burned the letters, he had no proofs. He didn't know who his mother was, but he set to work to find out. He ferreted into Elihu's past life, and he learned something about Hattie Burgess, or Thorwald. She was married by that time, and lived on a little ranch near Narada. He went to see her, and he accused her downright of being his mother. It must have been a bad time for her, for after all he was her son, and she had to disclaim him. She had a husband, and a boy by that husband, however, by that time, and she was desperate. She threw him off the track somehow, lied and talked him down, and then went to bed in collapse. She sent for Henry later, and told him. The queer thing was that as soon as she saw him she wanted him. He was her son. She went to Henry one night, and said she had perjured her soul, and that she wanted him back. She wasn't in love with Thorwald. I think she'd always cared for Clark. She went away finally, however, after promising Henry she would keep Clark's secret. But I have a suspicion that later on she acknowledged the truth to the boy. What he wanted, of course, was a share of the Clark estate. Of course he hadn't a chance in law, but he saw a chance to blackmail young Judd Clark, and he tried it. Not personally, for he hadn't any real courage, but by mail. Clark's attorneys wrote back, saying they would jail him if he tried it again, and he went back to Dry River, and after Henry again. That was in the spring of 1911. Henry was uneasy, for Clifton was not like himself. He had spells of brooding, and he took to making long trips on his horse into the mountains, and coming in with the animal run to death. Henry thought, too, that he was seeing the Thorwald woman, the mother. Thorwald had died, and she was living with the son on their ranch, and trying to sell it. He thought Hines was trying to have her make a confession which would give him a hold on Judd Clark. Henry was not well, and in the early fall he knew he hadn't long to live. He wrote out the story and left it in his desk for me to read after he had gone, and as he added to it from time to time, when I got it, it was almost up to date. Judson came back to the Clark ranch in September, bringing along an actress named Beverly Carlyle and her husband, Howard Lucas. There was considerable talk, because it was known that Judd had been infatuated with the woman. But no one saw much of the party, outside of the ranch. The Carlyle woman seemed to be a lady, but the story was that both men were drinking a good bit, especially Judd. Henry wrote that Hines had been in the East for some months at that time, and that he had not heard from him. But he felt that it was only a truce, and that he would turn up again hell-bent for trouble. 
He made a will and left the money to me, with instructions to turn it over to Hines. It is still in the bank and amounts to about $35,000. It is not mine, and I will not touch it. But I have never located Clifton Hines. In the last entry in his record I call attention to my brother's statement that he did not regard Clifton Hines as entirely sane on this one matter and to his conviction that the hatred Hines then bore him, amounting to a delusion of persecution, might on his death turn against Judson Clark. He instructed me to go to Clark, tell him the story, and put him on his guard. Clark and his party had been at the ranch only a day or two, when one night Hines turned up at Dry River. He wanted the fifty thousand, or what was left of it, and when he failed to move Henry he attacked him. The two men on the place heard the noise and ran in, but Hines got away. Henry swore them to secrecy and told them the story. He felt he might need help. From what the two men at the ranch told me when I got there, I think Hines stayed somewhere in the mountains for the next day or two, and that he came down for food the night Henry died. Just what he contributed to Henry's death I do not know. Henry fell in one room, and was found in bed in another, when the hands had been taking the cattle to the winter range, and he'd been alone in the house. When I got there, the funeral was over. I read the letter he had left, and then I talked to the two hands, Bill Ardery and Jake Mazzetti. They would not talk at first, but I showed them Henry's record, and then they were free enough. The autopsy had shown that Henry died from heart disease, but he had a cut on his head also and they believed that Hines had come back, had quarrelled with him again, and had knocked him down. As Henry had, in a way, handed over to me his responsibility for the boy, and as I wanted to transfer the money, I waited for three weeks at the ranch, hoping he would turn up again. I saw the Thorwald woman, but she protested that she did not know where he was, and I made two attempts to see and warn Judd Clark, but failed both times. Then one night the Thorwald woman came in, looking like a ghost, and admitted that Hines had been hiding in the mountains since Henry's death, that he insisted he had killed him, and that he blamed Judd Clark for that and for all the rest of his troubles. She was afraid he would kill Clark. The three of us, the two men at the ranch and myself, prepared to go into the mountains and hunt for him before he got snowed in. Then came the shooting at the Clark place, and I rode over that night in a howling storm, and helped the coroner and a Narada doctor in the examination. All the evidence was against Clark, especially his running away, but I happened on Hattie Thorwald outside on a veranda, she'd been working at the house, and I didn't need any conversation to tell me what she thought. All she said was, "'He didn't do it, doctor. He's still in the mountains.' He's been here tonight, Hattie, and you know it. He shot the wrong man. But she swore he hadn't been, and at the end I didn't know. I'll say right now that I don't know. But I'll say, too, that I believe that is what happened, and that Hines probably stayed hidden that night on Hattie Thorwald's place. I went there the next day, but she denied it all, said he was still in the mountains. She carried on about the blizzard and his being frozen to death, until I began to think she was telling the truth. The next day I did what only a tenderfoot would do, started into the mountains alone. Bill and Jake were out with a posse after Clark, and I packed up some food and started. I'll not go into the details of that trip. 
I went in from the Dry River Canyon, and I guess I faced death a dozen times the first day. I had a map, but I lost myself in six hours. I had food and blankets and an axe along, and I built a shelter and stayed there overnight. I had to cut up one of my blankets the next morning and tie up the horse's feet so he wouldn't sink too deep in the snow, but it stayed cold and the snow hardened, and we got along better after that. I'd have turned back more than once, but I thought I'd meet up with some of the sheriff's party. I didn't do that, but I stumbled on a trail on the third day toward evening. It was the trail made by John Donaldson, as I learned later. I followed it, but I concluded after a while that whoever made it was lost, too. It seemed to be going in a circle. I was in bad shape and had frozen a part of my right hand when I saw a cabin and there was smoke coming out of the chimney. From that time on, David's statement dealt with the situation in the cabin, with Judd Clark and the Donaldsons, and with the snowstorm, which began again and lasted for days. He spoke at length of his discovery of Clark's identity, and of the fact that the boy had lost all memory of what had happened, and even of who he was. He went into that in detail, the peculiar effect of fear and mental shock on a high-strung nature, especially where the physical condition was lowered by excess and wrong living. His early attempts, as the boy improved, to pierce the veil, and then his slow-growing conviction that it were an act of mercy not to do so. The Donaldson's faithfulness, the cessation of the search under the conviction that Clark was dead, both were there, and also David's growing liking for Judson himself. But David's own psychology was interesting, and clearly put. First of all, he dictated in his careful old voice, it must be remembered that I was not certain that the boy had committed the crime. I believed, and I still believe, that Lucas was shot by Clifton Hines, probably through an open window. There were no powder marks on the body. I believed, too, and still believe, that Hines had fled after the crime, either to Hattie Thorwald's house or to the mountains. In one case he had escaped and could not be brought to justice, and in the other he was dead and beyond conviction. But there is another element which I urge, not in defense, but in explanation. The boy Judson Clark was a new slate to write on. He had never had a chance. He had had too much money, too much liberty, too little responsibility. His errors had been wiped away by the loss of his memory, and he had, I felt, a chance for a new and useful life. I did not come to my decision quickly. It was a long fight for his life for he had contracted pneumonia, and he had the drinker's heart. But in the long days of his convalescence, while Maggie worked in the lean-to, I had time to see what might be done. If, in making an experiment with a man's soul, I usurp the authority of my lord and master, I am sorry. But he knows that I did it for the best. I deliberately built up for Judson Clark a new identity. He was my nephew, my brother Henry's son. He had the traditions of an honorable family to carry on, and those traditions were honor, integrity, clean living, and work. I did not stress love, for that I felt must be experienced, not talked about. But love was to be the foundation on which I built. The boy had had no love in his life. It has worked out. I may not live to see it at its fullest, but I defy the world to produce today a finer or more honorable gentleman, a more useful member of the community. 
and it will last. The time may come when Judson Clark will again be Judson Clark. I have expected it for many years, but he will never again be the Judson Clark of ten years ago. He may even will to return to the old reckless ways, but as I lie here, perhaps never to see him, I say this. He cannot go back. His character and habits of thought are established. To convict Judson Clark of the murder of Howard Lucas is to convict a probably or at least possibly innocent man. To convict Richard Livingston of that crime is to convict a different man, innocent of the crime, innocent of its memory, innocent of any single impulse to lift his hand against a law of God or the State. End of chapter 31